0: to evil done badly the worst true crime podcast in the history of the world it's new year's eve today and you should all be out partying and having a boatload of beverages instead of listening to this crap but just in case you are listening to this crap thank you so much for being here and thanks again to Jeff G for sending in this week's topic so enough babbling let's dive right into it what case will we be covering today Hey, we're doing the Menendez brothers. Now, I only know about them because they infamously make an appearance on a basketball card I had when I was a kid. The Mark Jackson card from 1990 Hoops shows the two of these fools sitting courtside at a Knicks game over at MSG. Now, this supposedly was shortly after they committed their heinous deeds. And uh, let's get into these heinous deeds. But first... Let's grab a beverage, hold on to our well-toned arses, and fire up the theme song. This episode of Evil Done Badly is brought to you by the wide world of paranormal investigations and ridiculous thrifter groups over on Facebook. For some reason, the guys who run these pages... They admit to knowing us. That's, uh, that's really cool. And they don't mind us mentioning them on our shitty podcast. So there you go. Get over there and join up. And let's get back to the show. Uh, time for a quick update here. Uh, Gerard over at the Wide World of Paranormal Investigations Group has informed me that they've just blown past 19,000 members, which is a fuckload of people. That's very cool. And uh I'd like to take some of the credit for that. I like to think we've sent at least one or two people his way. I mean, you know. There you go. We're we're doing our part. Lyle and Eric Menendez were born in 1968 and 1971. Whichever one was born in what year, that's well anybody's guess. That's the kind of informative pseudo-journalism we're all about around here. Either way, they were born in either New Jersey or New York, and in a sterling development had quite the privileged upbringing. They were not poor, and did not have to hold up old ladies for their lunch money, or eat bugs in order to find sustenance, like most of the cunts we normally cover on this show are. Now, it's quite the contrary. And their dad, Jose, was a Cuban immigrant and earned an accounting degree at Queen's College. It's here where he meets Mary Anderson, who goes by Kitty, and they have some sexy time, and they pump out little Lyle and Eric here. Jose moves up the corporate ladder and leaves RCA, more commonly known as the Record Cemetery of America, and heads up what was called International Video Entertainment at the time. Well, say what you want about RCA, but they responded to my demo tape in a timely manner. And the rejection letter was uh, quite, quite thoughtful. It was uh, way nicer than most of the rejection letters I've ever received. And uh, whatever, uh, anyways... Jose was responsible for hammering out a deal with Sylvester Stallone's film company STELLA! Oh, uh, what? Oh, wrong screaming guy. AGENT! And he eventually relocated to Beverly Hills, California and moved into a house formerly owned by the man formerly known as Prince. So these folks, they're doing quite well for themselves. Jose here is a driven, successful, professional and expected his children to follow along and dedicate their lives to being pompous, perfectionist assholes as well. He went so far as to make Kyle wear a hairpiece because he was prematurely balding and it was embarrassing for Jose. Now that's the kind of pretension we're dealing with here. His kids hair was a sore spot for him. He was very controlling and demanded that each of them excel at a sport and at academics. Uh, Jose preferred that they would excel at a loser individual sport like tennis because team sports, well, involve too much outside interference, and Jose didn't want too many pesky coaches or teammates hanging around. So these losers, well, they take up tennis. And for the record, I don't consider tennis a illusory sport. Well, I do kind of consider these cunts losers. So, uh, I love tennis. And if you don't believe me, you can test me. Hey, hey, Dick, who's the best player of all time? That's an easy one there, guy. Novak Yokovic is the best player of all time. Okay, next question. Hey, Dick, who's not the best player of all time? Well, that one's an easy one, too. Eric Menendez is not the best player of all time. See? I'm like a tennis encyclopedia. I love tennis, but I don't love these guys. So, uh, they do take it up, and Eric proves to be decently good, and he's decently good enough to be ranked in the top 50 of the junior US rankings. And uh, the older brother, he plays tennis too, and he goes ahead and gets accepted at Princeton, which I'm told is quite prestigious. The degree on my wall is not quite as prestigious. It cost me 20 bucks, and they spelled my name wrong. But I put it in a frame from Michaels, and if you don't look too closely at it, it's pretty impressive. Either way, he gets in mainly based on his tennis ability, not because he's all that bright. Now, despite their dad being a controlling perfectionist who demanded excellence of these two morons... Neither one of them winds up being all that exceptional. Their ability to wear short shorts and chase a rubber ball all around on the ground is what got them accepted at these fine schools. Of course, I'm sure daddy's money and influence didn't hurt either. So now that Lyle is off in a different state and no longer uh, fettered to his parents, he doesn't have access to their mom who used to do his homework for him. And it all kind of goes downhill really quickly. Lyle, well, he gets suspended for a year because he ripped off a fellow student's lab assignments. Naturally, rich old dad flies over, starts throwing his money around, and tries to talk them out of suspending him. They tell him to fuck off and come back in a year or so. Now, Jose is not going to let him sit around playing Nintendo for a whole year. And he makes him go to work at his own entertainment company. So, Lyle gets to see Dad in action and finds out that his dad is a complete fuckhead to everybody. And, uh, Lyle, well, he feels like the other employees start to resent him because he's the asshole boss's son. Now, in reality... The other employees resent Lyle, because he's a useless, arrogant piece of shit. They complain to Jose about him being lazy, and Jose does the only reasonable thing. And he actually fires his son's ass. I was totally expecting him to fire the people complaining about him, but I guess it's much easier to replace a useless piece of shit son than actual good employees. When Lyle does get back to school, He's not gotten any smarter, and his grades still suck. Of course, his parents are not above paying people to uh, keep him in sensible homework to pass in, so uh, that's kind of how he's making his way here. And uh, these two fellows, well, they keep plugging away at being useless. And Eric befriends the captain of the tennis team over in California, and it's a dude named Craig Signorelli. Between the two of them, they write a crappy 62-page screenplay about a guy with rich parents. Don't know where they got that. But, uh, for anyone wondering, that's about five to six episodes of Evil Done Badly worth of words. So that's kind of long. And it's terrible. And the premise is a little disturbing. The boy in the story finds out that his parents, when they die, he stands to inherit their A $157 million fortune. Since waiting for people to die of old age can take a long time, the person in this story decides to speed things along a bit and just murder them for the money. And then he gets killed. So at least there's sort of a happy ending to it. But overall, that's a bad sign. I'm guessing this never ever came to light until well after everything went down. Because i consider that a bit of a red flag so you you don't really want this getting out in 1988 lyle is back living in california and he and eric decide that working a job is a hassle and that asking jose for money all the time is way more demeaning than it's worth especially for two guys as cocky as these little pricks so they come up with a different alternative do both those things and the alternative is breaking into the houses of their friends parents who were frequently quite well off also now they got good at it and they did this a few times and they made off with over a hundred grand in total that will buy a lot of nintendo games eventually though they were bound to get caught and eric gets pulled over for speeding or something equally as dumb, while he's lugging around stolen goods in the trunk of his car. So they're caught. And as you may expect, Jose goes batshit. His exceptionally unexceptional children had fucked up pretty bad this time. They fucked up to the extent that they were possibly looking at serious jail time for grand theft burglary. So as much as Jose was stewing a pot of seething anger, He desperately wanted these incidents to blow over and didn't want his kids to go to jail because it would, well, look bad on him. So he hires a fancy lawyer and he manages to work at a deal where the youngest brother, whichever one that is, would take the fall for the whole thing. The younger one was a minor at the time and got sentenced to community service working at a soup kitchen in order to undergo a psychiatric evaluation. Now, the Mendoza's were living in a place called Calabasas at the time, and it didn't really go over very well with the neighbors that these two burglar and jerks were walking around free men. Jose was beginning to feel uncomfortable living there, and claimed he was harassed on a number of occasions about it. They were wealthy, and well, they didn't have to put up with this treatment. So they took their ball and well, they went home. They moved away. They uprooted their asshole family and moved to Beverly Hills. In 1989, Lyle is back at Princeton and he knocks up his girlfriend. Jose is not thrilled about it and bullied the girl into having an abortion. And along with the bullying, well, he offered her a hefty sum of cash to uh, make the problem go away. Jose, of course, blamed the girl and not horny little Lyle and forbade Lyle from ever seeing her again. So, uh, yeah, Jose, he can be kind of a bit of a dick himself. In the meantime, he's still doing very well at the entertainment place and has a $5 million dollar in life insurance policy taken out on him. And his wife, Kitty, is named the beneficiary. You can sort of see where this is going. In an unrelated note, let's talk about Jose's will, which was written up long before Jose owned anything worth worrying about. This will named Eric and Lyle as the beneficiaries of the entire estate, which was fuck-all at the time, but is currently worth considerably more than fuck-all, in the event something should happen to both jose and kitty so right about now Lal is back at princeton and getting shit marks again even with his friends helping him he's useless he can't even cheat right anymore eric is back in beverly hills waiting to go to ucla and he's still playing tennis he enters some tournaments but gets booted out pretty quickly. Uh, So, going on the ATP tour seems more and more unlikely. He's not the prodigy that Jose was hoping he would be. So, these two are not excelling at pretty much anything. Lyle gets put on academic and disciplinary probation at Princeton for being all-around crap at school and destruction of property. He goes one step further and gets the family kicked out of the Princeton Country Club for driving around a golf cart at night and causing a bunch of destruction. Of course, Jose pays them off to kind of smooth it over. Jose becomes tired of having to smooth things out for these two useless bastards and starts making real, genuine threats to these little fuckers. He starts laying it down hard. He pulls out all the stops. And he threatens to take them out of the will altogether. He hits these preppy little fuckers right where it hurts. So, uh, that doesn't go over that great. And these two bozos, they become a bit more unstable. And mom has noticed they're a bit more unstable. And she is taken to uh, locking her door at night and keeping a 22 in the closet. She told her therapist that she felt Eric and Lyle were narcissistic sociopaths. She's scared shitless of these idiots. And then, on August twentieth of nineteen eighty-nine, this call comes into nine-one-one at eleven forty-seven p.m. Ahem. Here we go. Dispatcher, uh, Beverly Hills emergency. Lyle Menendez. Yes, uh, police, uh, uh, what seems to be the problem here? Uh, where the sons? Um, uh, what's the problem here, sir? What's the problem? Uh, they shot and they killed my parents! What? Who? Are they still there? Well, uh, yes! The people who... No, no! They were shot. Eric! Man, don't! Uh. I got a hysterical person on the phone. Do you want to talk to him? Yeah. Okay, so he pulls in a second dispatcher here. Second dispatcher comes along and goes, Uh, what happened? Uh, have you been able to figure out what happened? I don't know. Uh, you came home and found who shot? My mom and dad! Uh, are they still in the house? The people who did the shooting? Eric, get away from them! Who is the person who was shot, sir? My mom and dad! And that's the end of the call. So, Jose and Kitty are found shot at their house by poor little Eric and Lyle here. It's all very tragic. These poor young men are now orphaned in a senseless act of ultraviolence. I hope the murderers are found quickly and executed swiftly and painfully. A couple of minutes later, the police arrive and the two boys run out of the house, acting like crazy people who had just found their parents shot dead. They are running in circles, blubbering and making no sense. The younger one has to be restrained from smacking his head off a nearby tree. He's clearly traumatized. The lead investigator goes inside and says something to the effect of, yep, there's two dead people over there, and he also comes to the conclusion that there was no forced injury and no signs of a burglary, despite the place being quite the mess. The brothers are not considered suspects, but they are questioned nonetheless by the police. The younger one keeps acting bonkers while the older one sits back and gives oddly rational answers to the cops' inquiries. They give a rundown of their activities that day, which included tennis, movies, and alcoholic beverages. They describe coming home to smell smoke in the family room before finding the bodies. Now, this is a bit weird because no one at the scene afterwards, they didn't know anything about no smoke. They describe that their mom's emotional state was a little erratic and told them that she was scared shitless and most likely suicidal. Jose had had a number of affairs over the years and maybe this was a murder-suicide on account of the mob being disgruntled. I don't know. That's sort of a theory. And when the boys were asked who would have disliked their barons enough to have them taken out, they countered with, quote, maybe the mob. End quote. So uh that's another theory. I mean, yeah, rich obnoxious people tend to piss off other rich obnoxious people who have no trouble paying unscrupulous people to make their problems go away. I mean it could be anybody. But moving on to the autopsies here. The autopsies uh kind of conflict with all that. The autopsies reveal multiple wounds in both bodies. Jose had bullet wounds all over his body including a wound in his brain big enough to put a fist in. Kitty had holes in her face, her knees, and had one of her thumbs blown off. Kitty was found to have birdshot in her wounds, which indicated that the killer or killers had reloaded somewhere along the way and continued shooting. Jose did not have any of the birdshot. This was extreme overkill. I think this rules out any kind of murder-suicide scenario. It's also hard to imagine any kind of burglar being well, that passionate about putting that amount of lead into his victims. It was theorized that the killer shot out their knees to make it play into the mob angle. Now it seems weird to me that someone would go through the trouble to have someone kneecapped only to blow them away multiple times a few seconds later. Uh, I'm not sure the mob is silly enough to do that. kind of defeats the whole purpose of the kneecapping. So I'm pretty sure that the mob argument, well, it's a little bit flimsy. So in the next few days, the brothers put off a lavish funeral for their parents, to which they show up an hour late, and four days later they get to work on spending their newfound riches. Their newfound riches were not as lucrative as they were expecting because a large portion of the estate would be tied up in the court system and wouldn't be released to the brothers for quite some time. After uh, the initial stuff was sorted out, each brother was left with around $2 million and they still had the mansion. They decided that it's too expensive to maintain the mansion and they started living out of hotels and they used the excuse that, hey, the mob's probably after us so uh we need to keep moving around and they also hired bodyguards to discourage the mafia from trying to take them out too one funny thing here is that the five million dollar policy that the entertainment company had taken out on jose's life was not valid because jose hadn't bothered to undergo the required physical for it to be valid oh that's too bad these poor guys First, their parents are murdered, and then they lose out on 5 million bucks due to a technicality. Either way, this setback doesn't stop them from spending lavishly on cars, Rolexes, traveling, basketball tickets, stereo equipment, and stupid business ideas. The older one tried to start some kind of investment business with all of his losery friends, but that went nowhere and he took a big hit on it. He also bought a chicken wing place for a half million dollars. He gave away so much free food to his losery friends that he was hemorrhaging money out of his ass every single day. He dressed up fancy and tried to look the part, but he had no idea how to actually do any kind of business. Now, Eric tried to sponsor a rock concert, but managed to get robbed of 40 grand in the process and decided that well, logically enough, that, hey, I suck at business, and uh, that's probably true, and he went back to the tennis court to try and go professional, even though he kind of sucked at it too. He hired a trainer and traveled extensively to get his ass handed to him all over the world. So these fools are spending all sorts of money in the wake of this tragic event, while the police are looking for the evil perpetrators of this atrocity. While searching for these evildoers, they find that Jose was indeed a bit of a fuckhead and did have his fair share of people who didn't like him. They also find a few people who are not overly fond of Lahal and Eric, and suggest that they are probably capable of doing it themselves. Now, the fact that the brothers had blown through a million dollars of Jose's money in the last couple of months did not endear them to anyone either. It's a bad fucking look. It also makes the police handling of the murder scene look a little bad because no one ever thought to do a gunshot residue test on the brothers at the time. They were a couple of blubbering idiots whose parents just got shot. I mean, how insensitive would it be to say, "Hey." Let's see if you're the murderer. I mean, sheesh. Who could blame the police for not doing that? Well, lots of people start to blame them, and they wind up right smack dab on top of the suspect list. Moving on. In the course of interviewing people, the police find out that the boys had hired a computer guy to come over and wipe out the contents of Kitty's computer. That's a lot, ain't it? But it happened to conveniently contain a new copy of the Menendez as well and probably had some recipes for guacamole and some Chippendales pictures on it as well. Now this is also kind of fishy looking. Now this same friend, Craig, also mentioned that he thought Lyle was aiming to bilk his younger brother out of what was left from... Eric's part of Jose's fortune. So, hmm, the investigator takes this information and runs over to Eric's hotel room and tells him that, hey, are you two guys uh, getting along or are you kind of falling out here? Eric, uh, he does reveal that he believes that Lyle is out of control with his spending and is starting to act way too much like their asshole father so the idea that the two of them were not getting along was very plausible. The interview ends with nothing really accomplished, but it has a drastic effect nonetheless. Eric does his best to remain cool and calm throughout, but by the time the investigator leaves, he's a bit rattled. He's so rattled, he calls Lyle to discuss the goings-on, and he kind of felt that the police were... You know, kind of closing in on them. Even though, you know, they're totally innocent and stuff. Either way, he needs to talk to Kyle, and Kyle is not available at the time. And Eric really needs to uh, confide in someone here. Because he's really, really fucking rattled. So he goes to see his therapist, a Dr. Jerome Oziel. Now, Dr. Ozeal encourages him to talk about whatever's bothering him, and uh, I hope you're not having any suicidal thoughts and that sort of thing. They putter around outside for a bit, and he opens up, and uh, on the way back to the office, Eric leans over and whispers, Oh, we did it. We killed our parents. Unquote. Eric goes on to spill the whole barrel of beans and tells him, all about how they were inspired to kill Jose and Kitty by a show called Billionaire Boys Club, in which some rich people kill their parents for money. He describes how they came back to the house that night. Lyle stood there with two guns and said something to the effect of, quote, Let's do it! Don't let your dreams be dreams! Unquote. Disclaimer, that's not a real quote. And then they went inside and started firing. He describes how they bought shotguns, fired the shotguns, cleaned them up, and drove somewhere to throw them over a cliff. They also dumped the casings and bloody clothes in the dumpster along the way. He also explained that Jose was the main target, but Kitty had to be killed too if they were going to get away with it. So, good Dr. Ozeal, he's a little bit blown away by the revelation and tells Eric to call Lyle and get him to come the fuck over right now. Lyle does come over, and he's totally rotted that Eric couldn't keep his fucking trap shut. Ozeal explains to them that this crime is a big fucking deal and no longer qualifies as a non-premeditated passion killing on account of all the premeditation. This is first-degree murder territory, and nothing to sniff at. Lyle continues being upset and threatens Dr. Ozeal's well-being. And uh, Dr. Ozeal, he keeps seeing the boys. Dr. Ozeal has another meeting with the brothers in which he is threatened, which he records on tape. He is perfectly within his rights to go to the police about it. And this will come up later, it's a big question, is that... Does patient-doctor confidentiality apply here? No. Because once this guy threatens his life, it's ruled that, hey, no, you can't threaten people and expect people to keep your secrets. So, either way, he could go to police, but he doesn't. He keeps seeing them, and for the time being, he's going to keep it all under his hat. Meanwhile, The police are still talking to this friend guy, Craig, from before, and he tells them that after the murder, Eric gave them a tour of what could have happened at their house. Now, the police are skeptical and are unsure as to whether Craig was being completely honest, so they call his bluff, and they ask him to volunteer to wear a wire and see if he can coax a confession out of Eric on tape. And Craig surprisingly agrees. He goes along with it. Craig wears the wire to the dinner date with Eric. And Eric admits, well, he admits to saying those things. He then reiterates that what he was saying was a joke and not meant to be taken seriously. So, this little bit of a investigation turned out to be kind of a bust. Time passes and the police try to get a lead on the guns used in the murder. They look into the sale records of the gazillion gun shops in California and look for names of anyone that might be in some way connected to the two brothers. But they don't find shit. And as time continues to pass, it turns out that Jose's estate is soon going to be put through the system and will inevitably be put into control of the two brothers. No one wants to see them profit from this, and uh, they're saucy obnoxious little pricks, and no one wants them to get it. End of story. And they think that they did it. Okay, so Oziel knows that the two brothers have admitted to it, and he's been threatened. Oziel has not told the authorities, why? No one really knows but he has told the woman that he was banging. Wow. Nothing bad can come from this. Ozeal invited his uh, mistress, Judelon Smith, to listen in on his sessions with the Menendez brothers. She later comes forward and states that she heard Kyle threaten to kill Ozeal and everyone associated with him. She also tells him about the tapes containing all the lurid details. So why did she wait so long to come forward with all this? Well, Oziel was banging Joodle on here behind his wife's back and I think it all fell apart pretty badly. So like you would, she set out to make him as uncomfortable as possible and she set the cops on him with a warrant for all his records and audio tapes and that was a big part of it. Sounds like a little bit of revenge might have been <laughs> involved there. So on March 8th, 1991, Lyle is stopped and arrested on his way to the Cheesecake Factory. His car is surrounded, and people yell at him to get out. He's not getting out. He tries to reverse his way out of it, tries to escape, but he smacks into a van that had been tailing him all along. Eric Well, he's in Israel, losing a tennis match somewhere, and he gets the news that his older brother has been arrested. The only rational thing for Eric to do here is to never go back and retire to Singapore or something. Sounds pretty good. Nevertheless, for some strange reason, he remains loyal to his older brother and flies back to L.A. to meet him. And he's arrested at the airport a couple of days later and he is now facing a possible death penalty. While they are still building the case, the investigators learn that the brothers had obtained the guns in San Diego. They go through all the records from the big and small gun shops and come across a sale for two shotguns to a Donovan Goudreau, who was a longtime friend of the boys and was well acquainted with doing their homework back in the day. Now, the police tracked him down, asked him where he was at the time the guns were bought, and they showed him the receipt with his signature on it. Now he could confirm that he was far away working in New York at the time and said that the handwriting on the receipt was piss poor horse shit and totally not his. One of the brothers had forged his signature and given his driver's license to get the guns. They also provided them with a phony address. So, who wrote the fake signature? Well, Lyle and Eric are asked for handwriting samples, and Eric politely refuses on the grounds that, well, it would make him look guilty. This was a critical link between the brothers and the murder. So, there's a trial forthcoming. The two boys hire expensive lawyers who hire out less expensive lawyers to assist him. They are accused of first degree murder with special circumstances and both of them cheekily plead not guilty while making casual banter with their lawyers and the girls in the audience. The prosecution's case pretty much hinges on Judelon's testimony and getting Oziel's tapes admitted to evidence. They do get most of them admitted due to the threat of violence on Oziel's life but a couple of them do get thrown out. Now there's 17 tapes in all, so there's plenty of dabbing evidence to go around. It's starting to look really bad for them. The defense's case hinges on, well, Jose being a complete and utter piece of dick shit. These two went on painting a picture of Jose who was systematically abusing them physically, emotionally, and sexually. They were painting themselves as the helpless victims who were doing the only reasonable thing. Problem was, for that angle to work, there really wasn't a whole lot to go on. Nobody could provide any witnesses, testimony, or physical evidence that any of it was true. Yes, Jose was a domineering asshole who demanded a strict adherence to being exceptional, but that hardly qualifies as life-threatening and murder-worthy. So the defense dresses Kyle and Eric up in little boy clothes, and makes them appear shy and timid. They're told to turn off the cocky prick part of their brains in order to sell the idea that they were sexually abused by this monster. They also frame the murder as the boys being afraid for their lives because they were on the verge of exposing Jose for the sicko he allegedly was. According to them, they had to take care of business before Jose had them knocked off first. So there you go. That's the case, these guys are either spoiled little greedy fucks who murdered their parents for money or they were just lashing out because of the years of intense paternal abuse. Now, Three years later, the trial goes ahead and as you can imagine, rich people, murder. This trial is a hot topic and is a bit of a media frenzy and of course these two only get sexier and more famous the longer they are on TV. As we all know, the quickest way to a woman's heart is to get accused of murdering people on television. So they go to trial together. Kyle sits on the stand for nine days telling everyone how his parents molested them so much he took refuge in a family of stuffed animals and used to wet his bed well into his teens. Eric also did his best to taint his parents' reputation over a span of many days. These two morons had separate juries, and both of them had to deliberate for more than two weeks just to come back as inconclusive, which was kind of a victory for the defense. So they got a pretty good deal out of their expensive lawyers, but they're not off the hook yet. So by 1995, they're ready to go ahead and try it again. This time they ruled that it was a hassle to have two sets of jewelries, so they said fuck it. And went with a single set of involuntary volunteers. These two can't afford their pricey lawyers anymore. But Eric gets his original lawyer paid for by the state. And Lyle gets an old crusty public defender who's about a week away from retirement. So it's looking even less great for them at the moment. It takes him five or six months to go over the same pile of random crap again. This time, the prosecution zeroes in on the motivations and careful planning of the murders that the brothers did to make it seem more heartless and deliberate. The defense keeps pushing the child abuse angle, but this time they're not allowed to present as much evidence in their favor. The judge ruled a bunch of it inadmissible because hearing it was an annoying waste of time. The prosecutor went on to say that these snotty little bastards were full of shit, and were not for any reason in fear of their lives. Prosecution also notes that if they were in fear for their lives, yes, that would make some kind of sense in the case of the killing of Jose. It did not make any sense in the case of Kitty's murder. There was no evidence that they feared for their lives at the hands of Kitty. She was not considered even a little bit of a threat, but they killed her anyway. So there you go, self-defense theory right out the window. They are found guilty of first-degree murder, and it takes them another three weeks to come up with the sentence, of which there were only two options, life in jail without parole, or being tied to a railway track and having their limbs blown off one by one. Over these three weeks, the defense presents a bunch of 18 witnesses, who went on the stand to whine and beg for leniency for these two fucktards. So that's a whole load of bitching and whining and is, well, very irritating just to hear about. And to make matters worse, Eric's lawyer gets caught for making one of Eric's therapists fudge evidence before presenting it. Wow. That's what you get when you stop paying for your lawyer. You get shitty service. The jurors badly wanted to go home and they unanimously decided that the Menendezes are going to spend the rest of their lives in prison and not be killed. Boo. They would later state that Jose was indeed an asshole but they didn't buy the whole sexual abuse business. They did give them points for not having any previous record of violence and sort of sympathized with having to grow up with the pompous dick fuck of a father. They also agreed that it in no way justified their extreme actions, so they are going away forever and in a cruel twist of fate they are tucked away in separate prisons without any stuffed animals. If they're lonely though, I'm guessing they will find plenty of animals who are willing to stuff them full of something. But boy, are they sexier than ever. Both the brothers have been married while locked up, and Kyle has actually tied the knot twice. And that will do it for the violent story of the Menendez brothers. Best known for inflating the value of Mark Jackson's 1990 hoops card. It was a 5 cent card until someone figured out who was in the background of it. Now it fetches upward of 10 bucks. So if you're sitting on a pile of mint ones, you may be able to retire. Send one my way if, uh, if you've got too many of them. Thanks. And in closing, I would like to state, Hey, Kyle and Eric Menendez, with all due disrespect, you're a couple of real cunts. I hope someone blows your elbows off. And there you have it. Another fucked up episode of the worst true crime podcast ever. Evil done badly is over and done with. If you would like to reach out and suggest future episode topics, we can be reached on Instagram at badly, or by email at evildumbadly at gmail.com. So thanks again to our few regular listeners, and I'm glad you're here. My name is Dick. Happy New Year. Have another beverage. And I hope to see you next time. Bye-bye.